Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 116 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. And our episode today is about DOJ's, the Justice Department's conviction of Lawrence Hoskins, a former Alstom executive for FCPA and money laundering violations. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. And before we get started, our usual two points. First, please subscribe to our podcast and give the podcast a five-star rating. Second, just to remind everyone, the Volkoff Law Group offers anti-corruption legal and compliance services. We have extensive experience in the design and implementation of anti-corruption compliance programs, risk and compliance program assessments, and third-party and post-acquisition audits. Well, uh, the Justice Department had a big victory on Friday. Uh, Lawrence Hoskins, a, a United Kingdom a British citizen, and former Alstom executive was convicted on 11 of 12 counts for his role in a bribery scheme involving Indonesian officials. Uh, the Hoskins case has been a long and tortured case for the Justice Department uh, to even get to the trial, uh, where it took years to secure the trial because of jurisdictional challenges and appeals that went all the way up to the Second Circuit after the trial judge had uh, dismissed part of the case. Hoskins was originally indicted in 2013. Alstom itself settled FCPA charges, as everybody knows, at the end of 2014, was eventually acquired by uh, GE. And uh, at that time, they agreed to pay roughly $770 million. Three other Alstom officers uh, pled guilty to FCPA offenses. And Alstom's consortium partner, uh, Marabini Corporation, pled guilty in 2014 to FCPA conspiracy and seven substantive FCPA offenses, uh, ultimately resulting in the payment of a $88 million fine to resolve the case. So if you'll recall, they, going back in time, uh, DOJ secured uh, individual indictments and individual prosecutions and plea, guilty pleas uh, starting in 2013. And uh, Mr. Hoskins was the lone holdout in terms of, uh, you know, stating that he wanted to go to trial. Uh, the government prosecutors in this case were Dan Kahn, who's the former FCPA unit chief, who was recently uh, promoted in the fraud section. Uh, Lorinda Larea from the FCPA unit, she's an assistant chief, and David Novick, uh, who was an assistant U.S. attorney from Connecticut. Uh, all of them prosecuted the case. The case was in federal district court in uh, Connecticut, which is where the U.S. subsidiary of Alstom was located. Um, as I mentioned, the jury deliberated here for one day, uh, which was a resounding victory for the prosecutors. I mean, this is a complex case. Uh, and to have a jury sort of return uh, a quick verdict like that is always a sign that they weren't very persuaded by the defense uh, that was raised. 
in this case and were comfortable with the, the government's uh, proof and sort of arguments with regard to the evidence that they had um, offered. The Hoskins defense team here launched a really unusual defense, and I think it sort of fell flat is what happened here. What they did was they they claimed that Hoskins did not act as a quote-unquote agent of a domestic concern. Remember, going back to the appeal, uh, the only part of the jurisdictional hook that was permitted by the defense, by the judge, and ultimately affirmed by the Second Circuit, was that Hoskins had to fall within the category of being an agent of a domestic concern, this being the U.S. subsidiary. Uh, um, And their defense was that, hey, he wasn't an agent. He was the principal. And he was located in the U.K. He wasn't part of the subsidiary in the U.S. And he didn't act as an agent. He was the principal who made all the relevant decisions with regard to the bribery scheme. And they, they played it a little too cute in my mind because they were saying, well, he didn't really, he was responsible for all the acts, but he ne- didn't necessarily have the knowledge of the bribery scheme. So they were trying to sort of weave through here um, a kind of, uh, you know, a little bit too cute of a defense. Uh, and the jury's quick verdict here reflects its rejection of such a sort of technical defense that he was not an agent of a domestic concern. And, you know, my experience is that when defendants raise technical defenses like saying that uh, there's a defense, for example, of multiple conspiracies, in other words, the the verdict, the charging document here uh, focused on the wrong conspiracy in like in drug cases or other types of conspiracies, they'll say there's really multiple conspiracies here and he can't be or she can't be convicted of that. Such a technical defense uh, rarely is persuasive because it requires uh, the defendant to sort of acknowledge the criminal activity uh, in one way or another, but just say, hey, the defense, uh, the government charged this wrong, so let my guy go. Um, and in a sense, that's what uh, also the Hoskins defense team was doing and saying, look, he did all these acts, but this is technically wrong. You can't apply this law to a foreigner who sits in uh, the U.K., never came to the U.S., uh, wasn't in the U.S. at the time. Uh, and it's sort of uh, the jury's rejection of this uh, defense shows how far such a technical defense can work in the real world. Uh, it may work in papers and in terms of claims that the jurisdiction of the law as a legal matter to the to the judge doesn't apply. But uh, when you get in front of a jury and start doing a defense like that, that's a really uh, a difficult defense to make work. So the, the, the trial lasted two weeks. Uh, Hoskins was convicted of six counts of violating the FCPA. Um, those are substantive counts, three counts of money laundering uh, and two counts of conspiracy, one money laundering conspiracy and one FCPA conspiracy. Uh, the judge set a sentencing date in January of 2020. Um, I suspect uh, he'll get some serious jail time. Uh, some of the cooperators in this case got serious jail time of like three years, uh, from which they then uh, earned a 5K, you know, to reduce their sentence. Um, the government's evidence was fairly strong here because they had email messages uh, which were pretty explicit about paying bribes, uh, and they had cooperating witness testimony relating to the use uh, of two consultants to pay bribes to Indonesian government officials, 
uh, including one member of parliament. Uh, the two consultants uh, were used to pay bribes to secure an, an $118 million contract from Indonesia's state-owned electricity company. The first consultant received hundreds of thousands of dollars in a Maryland bank account, uh, hence some of the jurisdictional hook in the United States, uh, to fund the bribery scheme, and then made payments to bribe a member of Indonesia's uh, parliament. And the consultant transferred money from the U.S. account to an Indonesian bank account. Uh, and in some of the emails, they refer to the consultant as a cashier. But the, if you review some of the email evidence, which is in the Alstom settlement itself, settlement document, uh, you'll see uh, some. Con you'll see how explicit some of the communications were. Some involving Hoskins himself writing or receiving uh, pretty uh, damning emails. In the fall of 2003, what happened was Hoskins and co the co-conspirators determined that the first consultant who was paid out of this Maryland bank account was not uh, effectively securing the project and, by paying the bribes, uh, and he was paying, at that time, a member of parliament to secure this uh, contract. So they then hired a second consultant and then front-loaded uh, and, and remember this term, front-loaded the consultant's compensation under the contract to more effectively bribe the relevant officials. Now, front-loading in this situation means they didn't wait to pay the consultant based upon commissions of a successful contract. What they did was they put more of the compensation up front, meaning so that, that uh, the consultant, this time the second consultant, could pass more bribes out to secure the contract and not uh, and not wait for the uh, winning of the contract and then payment of the bribes. In other words, these were sort of proactive uh, bribery payments. So at the trial, uh, the prosecutors and defense counsel really focused their closing arguments on whether or not Hoskins was an agent of the U.S. company's subsidiary in carrying out the uh, bribery scheme. The trial judge's instruction in the case on this issue required that the jury find, quote, a manifestation by the principal that the agent will act for it. The agent's acceptance of an undertaking or acts or services on behalf of the principal and an understanding that the principal is, quote unquote, in control of those acts or services. The judge further explained that, quote, one may be an agent for some business purposes and not others, adding that it is, in this case, the agent's agency had to be, quote, in connection with the specific events related to the contract known as the Tehran Project. This was the Indonesian uh, electricity project. The, the government, again, relied on uh, documents, including the emails, and I mentioned they had cooperating witness testimony. They had, for example, uh, Larry Puckett, a former Alstom executive, who stated that Frederick Perucci, who was another former Alstom executive who pled guilty, was the person who really called the shots on this uh, deal, not Lawrence Hoskins. You see, Hoskins' defense was, since I ran the whole show, I could not be an agent of a domestic concern. Um, I was the principal. I was the primary actor. And so the defense then focused its arguments on this technical explanation and claim that Hoskins was not an agent of a domestic concern since he was, in fact, the principal. But uh, the Puckett's testimony, uh, which was corroborated by another uh, cooperating witness, 
two other witnesses, actually David Rothschild and Edward Thiessen, uh, who had pled guilty and cooperated. And they uh, rejected uh, and they testified that, no, in fact, Perucci was the person uh, responsible for leading this and not Lawrence Hoskins. It's kind of a crazy technical defense, again, like I said, to say, hey, I did the acts of the crime. Uh, but, you know, the government doesn't really have a hook to get me with. And the jury sort of said pretty quickly, uh, yes, they do. Uh, and as a matter of fact, we're going to hold you liable for that. Um, and I don't see that uh, there'll be some that'll claim that maybe he can win on appeal. But I don't really see that uh, coming about in this case. In fact, uh, I think that the, the government's evidence is strong enough. The theory with regard to the agency relationship uh, appears to be fairly strong when you particularly read through the documents and then uh, uh, consider the, uh, the uh, testimony of the cooperating witnesses. And keep in mind, to reverse a um, conviction in this case, the government's going to get the benefit of what a reasonable juror would have viewed and whether there was sufficient evidence for a reasonable jury to find the defendant uh, guilty. And in this case, I don't think uh, yet again that they're going to have uh, that much trouble in maintaining this conviction. Um, but it has to be a pretty gratifying win for the government. Uh, it shows you again that uh, the government, is per, when it puts, a, puts a case together, it's usually strong. Um, you know, their FCPA track record uh, has been pretty good uh, for the last uh, several years. Um, and now uh, we have, again, a trial verdict, which I think shows that uh, the FCPA is going to be aggressively enforced, not only at the corporate level, but against the individuals uh, as well. This is a, a, a strong victory for the government, uh, and I think it's going to be uh, cited for its strength in uh, future negotiations with individuals who may be under investigation, as well as uh, companies in terms of attributing individual conduct. Uh, so anyways, a long and tortured case, uh, finally resulting in government victory. So I just wanted to do a quick review of that, and uh, we'll be back next week with another topic for corruption, crime, Help. and compliance. I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. Help. You know I need someone. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.holcroftlaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you with your
Won't you please?